Hello and welcome to Change My Mind, the podcast where we ask leaders about a time they change their mind on an issue and why. I'm Ali Goldsworthy. I'm founder and CEO of the Depolarization Project based out at Stanford in California. And I'm joined today, as always, by two fabulous co-hosts, Laura Osborne, who is Director of Campaigns and Communications at London First. Hi, Laura. Hi, I'm still deeply mired in Brexit as we speak this evening, but really looking forward to talking about something else. Yeah, and you're joining us from London? I am. Yeah, and also joining us, and it is today a particular show that got her quite excited, and rightly so, is Alex Chesterfield, our resident behavioural insight expert. Hi, Alex. Hi, Ali. Hi, Laura. As Laura said, I don't even want to talk about Brexit, although Joe and I do cover it in the interview. But no, he's great. I've been really looking forward to this one since we last interviewed his co-author, Steve Martin. So I have given a lot away about <laughs> about our guest today already. <laughs> Caroline, we can just cut that bit right out. I think I think we can. Um, I can think you can keep giving okay. away a bit about our guest because it just shows that you're excited. It is a bit of a behavioural insight special. And people should get yes, their notebooks is. ready because there is a yes. lot to take down here. Yes, that is a really good note. Get your get your note pages out, whether it's paper or online. So we have on the yeah. show today Joseph Marks or Joe, who is a doctoral researcher at UCL, University College London, supervised by Professor Tally Sherrott and also Cass Sunstein, who is a professor at Harvard and author of Nudge and probably now at least 100 other books. Uh, so Joe's research focuses on people's perceptions of themselves and how their environment and others influence their cognition and decisions. He holds a master's degree in social cognition from UCL and an undergraduate degree in psychology from the University of Birmingham in, in the UK. His research with Influence at Work, which is a, a consultancy, has been applied across a variety of business and public policy settings, including financial regulation healthcare and public transport. But perhaps most importantly of all, and for this podcast, he has just published his first book with Steve Martin called Messengers. So tell us more about your new book, Messengers. So essentially, Messengers is, is, is about the types of people who we listen to in life, um, regardless of the foolishness or wisdom of what they're actually saying. So you can imagine that you might have two people there and you know the audience will listen to one and not the other even though they're saying pretty much exactly the same thing so steve and i were fascinated by this and we thought well what is it about the messenger that is influencing whether people will listen to them and particularly in kind of recent times with the trump election and brexit um, we it seemed a very important time to better understand what are the messenger traits that most influence um, whether people will believe what somebody's saying. And, and why do we do this? Why would we be paying more attention to the messenger than the actual content of the message itself? Mm. I think as you and Steve, sorry, obviously Steve Martin is your, your co-author who was a previous guest on the podcast. I think you very pithily say in your book, it's now all about the messenger not the message, or the message is the messenger. Yes, yeah, that's a nice soundbite. The messenger is the message. Yeah. And I've, yeah. I, I mean, I've had it in meetings before where I have said something at the beginning of the meeting and I've had a few nods, but the conversation has moved on. I thought, God, oh, I thought that was a really good idea. Clearly not. And then somebody, and often it has been a man, 
has said later on exactly the same thing and he gets astounding respect or plaudits or praise or respect and I think well why was I why was I not obviously I needed your messenger book back <laughs> then um in, in in my back pocket so can you tell us about some of the you divide the book into yeah. eight messenger effective messenger traits is that the right word mm-hmm. traits yeah you've got four hard four soft can you can you give us a really quick overview again for our listeners who haven't read the book yet Absolutely. Yeah. No, we have basically a framework of two parts. So we have, on the one hand, hard messengers who derive influence from having superior status. Um, And on the other hand, we have soft messengers who are seen as connected to their audience in some way. So um, they're kind of softer in that people feel uh, positively towards them. They might feel like they're very nice to be around. They're likable, they're warm, trustworthy. Um, So there are several routes that you can attain status, uh, just like connectedness. So we essentially dedicate a chapter of uh, each chapter of the book to one of these traits. And a certain messenger might be effective because they have one trait or they might have a combination of traits. And what's kind of interesting is looking at people and not just saying what kind of messenger are they on one trait, but normally yeah. people will have sort of a combination. You can move the dials up and down yeah. across the eight traits and it makes a different profile of person. And is, is there a kind of superhuman messenger combination? <laughs> Probably they would be high on all eight. All yeah. eight, okay. So, yeah, have, yeah. okay. so what, what kind of messengers would um, Boris and, and Trump mm-hmm. be? Yeah, Boris and Trump are both clearly going for a high dominance, high socioeconomic position. So they're very status driven. Um, And what's interesting is that they're both perceived as charismatic, Mm. despite the fact that they have very different styles. So Boris is kind of a posh English uh, guy who who uses the linguistic devices that are typical of the charismatic messenger, whereas Trump um, speaks in almost schoolboy English. and just says very simple sentences, mm. sometimes grammatically incorrectly, um, but it gets through. And the reason he's perceived as charismatic is because he's able to project that collective vision that unites people under a common common cause. Mm. Um, and he's also he expresses surgency, which is like extroversion. He's yeah. optimistic. He's confident. He's uh, moves around a lot. He's kind of gesturing. He's energetic. He's got energy, hasn't he? Absolutely, yeah. And he's 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 ener- yeah. He's energetic in a way that is able to kind of inspire you because you can feel his emotion coming out of him. Yeah. You can feel that what he's saying, um, and and that captures people. And what's the other thing I find really interesting about them is that although they are both kind of constantly in the in the news for being fact-checked for their lies people will often perceive them as very trustworthy yes this is very i picked this up in the book this very um i guess interesting but quite congruent observation so in your book you argue that viewing someone as truthful and regarding as trustworthy are not the same thing and as you just said reference trump as a kind of classic actually boris mm. as well thinking about the many lies that boris has told but but people still view him as 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 trustworthy. So, yeah, can you expand expand on this? Because you think those two things are very. You can't be both. Yeah, yeah, and yet you can. And these are two really good examples where, in fact, we have data on John, uh, Boris Johnson where we asked people after he suspended Parliament. Um, mm. We said, 
Um, Boris Johnson has suspended Parliament and he claims that it was nothing to do with wanting to thwart the anti-no deal Brexit uh, from passing legislation in Parliament. Do you believe him, basically? Do you believe his line that he did it just to have a Queen's speech and because it's the normal way of going about things? Yeah. And what was really interesting was that Remainers didn't buy it, of course, but nor did Leavers. I think 75% of them said, no, I think he's lying. Yeah. I think he's just doing it to avoid scrutiny and to stop the no-deal opponents from thwarting what he's yeah. trying to do. Yet, they, the Leavers, this is, still rated him as the most trustworthy politician included in the set that we had them rate. And that included conservative politician uh, Kenneth Clark, yeah. who was kind of also being considered as a unity government prime minister, and also Nigel Farage. So Boris was rated more trustworthy than Clark or Farage. Exactly. Despite the fact that they had just told me that, <laughs> that they didn't believe him about one of this big lies that he had just made, and that is essentially... Uh, unconstitutional. So what what's happening at a psychological level? How can people hold those two things, believe those two things at yeah. the same time? Yeah, it's interesting in that um, they they should be the same in a way, but they're not, and that's because truthfulness is based on facts. So we're looking at was was what he said um, was there a ground truth there? Was it factually correct? Whereas trustworthiness, we're relying on broader, vaguer assessments. Mm -hmm. And in particular, what we're trying to do is um, understand somebody's kind of latent motivations and goals and values and, and see where they're really trying to go. And the thing is that Leave voters see Boris for what he is. They see what he's trying to do. He's trying to lie in order to get to an end goal, which is get Brexit delivered by mm -hmm. 31st of October. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he will tell a lie along the way um, doesn't really deviate. He's not deviating from his core principles in that ah, way. Which they are aligned to. Which they are aligned so to, exactly. Forgiving, so they can forgive. It's almost like you sort of credit. You can forgive some misdemeanors if you believe in the ultimate goal. Yes, yeah. And we have, you know, seen uh, other people's research showing exactly that, that mm. people who sort of conform to a group's norms and uh, kind of adopt the the style and thinking of a group for a while and fit in, then get to a point where they're actually able to start deviating from those norms themselves and people still trust them because they have this bank yeah. of group credits. They're called. Group credits, yeah, yeah, nice. And do you think, so obviously Boris and Trump exemplify these harder messenger traits, mm. would they be as successful in a different political or kind of global context? Mm. Yeah, so we also cite research in the book showing that Context really matters. So ideology and context are two factors that are going going to determine how likely a country is to elect a dominant leader. Yeah. And dominance is particularly valued in times of uncertainty, competition and conflict um, when people are anxious and they essentially are looking to somebody to come in, act assertively, decisively, um, negotiate hard with enemies or maybe even like, you know, start start fights with yeah, yeah, people yeah. who are sort of invading on their privacy or their goals or whatever it is, yeah. or their land. Um, and yeah, yeah, and you see this in in many areas uh, where you know, in times of uncertainty and conflict, you get dominant leaders, and in calmer, surer times, you have more harmonious, empathetic, softer mm 
leaders valued. Um, And you can see it in anthropological records, um, in tribes where they change chief in this way, depending on the context at the time. And um, the author Leslie Zebrowitz shows that you can see it in American actresses too. In times of economic hardship, then people are more likely to prefer a kind of harder actress, whereas in sure, calmer times, they prefer prefer a, a baby's glow. <laughs> yeah, that's so that's incredible, isn't it? <gasps> yeah. Um, so actually, thinking about some of the softer messenger traits, and in particular, vulnerability. Mm. Actually, before I go to the question, can you recap for listeners what what you mean by vulnerability? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of taking a risk in order to expose yourself, and usually that's through some form of kind of self disclosure. It could be, for example, confiding in somebody about something that's really, you know, heartfelt to you, or it could be expressing a want or a desire or a need, or just revealing something about yourself that, you know, is you're trying to bond with somebody, but could at the same time, you know, be exploited in a way. So I'm really interested in vulnerability in the context of changing minds, which is obviously the focus of this podcast, and more generally being open to alternative worldviews. Um, open to new evidence. So how does this soft messenger trait vulnerability sit with confidence and competence when we think about leadership? Mm-hmm. So can you be both? Can you be, and maybe this is actually going back to your context point, can you as a leader demonstrate vulnerability but also signal confidence mm-hmm. and competence? Yeah, so I, I don't think that you can sort of go around crying all day and saying woe is me and acting a victim as a leader because you're not going to inspire that confidence you're not going to be seen as the hard prototypical leader which sometimes is necessary to inspire confidence in your leadership skills but at the same time then I think it takes a lot of confidence to actually make yourself vulnerable Mm -hmm. a lot of times and for example to take a risk where you know you you might expose yourself in a certain way can pay off and it can not (laughs) um so i think you're right it's about picking your battles and you know if you're i think we make the point that it's it's there's a dance you're exposing yourself in the hope that the person on the receiving end is going to reciprocate trust yeah and um i actually watched the democratic debates and pete Buttigieg, i think said exactly this is that he was he came out to his um hometown as openly gay and was worried about being crucified from a conservative town um, and not getting elected. But he 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 had the trust and actually they reciprocated it and they elected him again and actually he saw an outpour of love from exposing himself in a way that could have backfired quite easily. Mm. And what, what about what about changing minds? I'm just thinking about, for example, Boris. So he has changed his minds on various policy positions mm. and that doesn't seem to have affected his... Um, I guess more hard, you know, hard messenger characteristics. But then other leaders, I'm thinking of, for example, Nick Clegg, when he changed his mind, mm. when the Dems changed their mind on uh, tuition yeah. fees, he was really ne- you know, negatively impacted by that and really mm. suffered in the polls by a result. So can, I guess, can changing, I'm thinking about how to explain that. Like, why does it, why can some leaders change their minds and others can't? Yeah, I think there's two things going on. And yeah. one is that, really was Nick Clegg's core principle. So he campaigned on on the basis of a couple of things. One of them was tuition fees. Um, And once you start kind of 
banging that drum to then change your mind on it in such a clear way is going to cause a backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, people won't trust what you say anymore. Whereas I think Boris's flip flapping is it's, it's it's mostly on minor issues, and it seems like it's not that big a problem um, for him to do it on these kind of things. If he suddenly told, turned around and said, actually, I think we should remain in yeah, the European yeah, Union, yeah. <laughs> then he's going to lose a lot of voters. He, even actually, I was asking that question, I was thinking, I can't think of any specific examples of Boris changing his mind mm. come to mind, um, which might mean they're insignificant. I can't, I can't draw them from memory, but I could on Nick Clegg. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, yeah, he, so he, he just waves them away in that way so that you don't remember them because he's not sort of admitting guilt and saying sorry over and over mm-hmm. again, which seems like the right thing to do yeah. and probably is the morally responsible thing to do in these situations. But he just sort of waves them away, says, no, no, no. Often there's outright denial, and you see that with Trump as well. Mm. where they just say actually i didn't say that or you're wrong that never happened um and by doing that then you know people can sort of tune into what they want to tune into and they see that show of strength they see you saying no you're you're wrong i'm right and okay we won't confer guilt on you and we won't stop trusting you because you're denying it and we want to believe that you're telling the truth so we will so does this make them motivated, what you call motivated reasons? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. 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 And that really holds in trust where, you know, as we kind of talked about, there's a sort of means and ends. If I want to believe you and see you as trustworthy, I will, as long as you give me reason to. Yeah, okay, so it seems cool. that core principle is a key, um, for being an effective messenger, is a key, mm. is key tenet of that. Now, this brings us actually on to trustworthiness. Again, so thinking back to, back to Boris, so... Trust is a, is a soft messenger trait. And in the book, you and Steve say consistency goes to the heart of perceptions of trustworthiness as it helps to predict how someone will behave in the future. Mm-hmm. So can leaders who change their minds still be seen as trustworthy? Mm. Yes, yeah, a good question. I, I think they can um, because the trustworthiness assessment comes down to trying to infer these latent motivations. And so if we can see that you changed your mind, perhaps because new evidence came up or, you know, that you kind of admit that you were wrong in the first place, it's not necessarily going to break a leader, even though a lot of them are worried that it will. Um, As long as the, the kind of supporters can still see that they're on their side and rooting for what they've always believed in. Mm -hmm. Because mm-hmm. as long as that bl- that kind of bigger picture stays consistent, the small transgressions or small flip flops can be excused. Mm-hmm. And especially if you just wave them away in that confident way yeah. that Trump yeah. and Johnson the seem rebut- so good at. Yeah, the rebuttal. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, who is a standout messenger for you? I, did, I was going to say ideally living, but they can be yeah. departed. No, I have a couple. I think I have three living stand-up messages. I thought about this yeah, one. So, um, number one is Louis Theroux. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I was not expecting Louis Theroux. Louis Theroux is great. He's a big hero of mine because he is so good at really asking astute questions that get to the heart of what you're interested in mm-hmm. and what you want to know about a person. Mm-hmm. And it makes he just has this way that people feel connected to him enough to open up and make themselves vulnerable. They trust him. Yeah. He's he's obviously a trustworthy messenger. Yeah. Have, have you got uh, an example of where he's really he's really succeeded or achieved in getting someone to open up? Um, 
So I, I mean, he he did uh, a few recently with um, polyamorous couples, and also with um, those who were who were taking their own lives, and it's this like heartfelt, really intense issue. They they have a drug delivered to their house that's yeah. going to kill them. The whole family is there. They've all planned this. They know what's happening, and he's able to kind of talk to them sometimes. Um, there was a husband and wife. He's talking to the husband while the wife is out of the room and he's opening up to him in a way he wouldn't even open up to his own wife. What, what, what is it that Louis Theroux does? Well, I think there's part of it that he is this external person. Mm. So you're able, you know, you're not, you're not kind of ruining this relationship if you say something that might offend the other person. Yeah. So there's an element of that that you might not want to tell your wife something that's going to offend her or upset her. It's, but... It's, Sorry, carry on. Yeah, but I think he's he's also just he seems so genuine and really cares about the person and he shows that and he yeah. shows I'm, you know, empathizing with you, no matter how much I disagree with your view. Yeah. Um, he gets where you're coming from. He gets where you're coming from, yeah. yeah. I was gonna say on the on the point about him opening up to people that are not your that you don't have a relationship with, I was like, is that kind of like when you tell everything to your hairdresser? No, you can maybe <laughs> you don't, but I think mean, I don't. And really open up to them. Is that kind of, it's kind of a similar, similar phenomenon? Yeah, yeah. so I can't relate to that exact <laughs> one. <laughs> the the barber tends to talk about football. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just a female thing. Okay, yeah. we'll come back to that. But, okay, so Louis Theroux. But it, funnily enough, it is a, a something we mentioned in the book in the context of the Braids Not AIDS campaign. Yeah, what's that? W- which is um, a Zimbabwean health campaign aimed at promoting condom use. Yeah. Um, and rather than use the traditional expert messenger, which would be like a health official, a doctor in a white coat yeah. telling you the science, what they did was trained hairdressers to oh, deliver yeah. the same information. Yeah. And in that context where it's somebody you feel comfortable with, somebody you might have known for a long time and you have this relationship, um, the message actually sunk through much better. So people, um, were, you know, they didn't have the same sort of, um, ice that needed to be broken. Yeah, the, yeah. the ice was already broken. Yeah, the, the groundwork was already laid. Yeah, and the conversation's an embarrassing one already, um, and one where you might just kind of dismiss. But if it's somebody who you really kind of know and care about telling you these things, then it can get through in, yeah. in a different way. Yeah. Okay, so Louis Theroux is number one messenger. Louis Theroux is number one. Yeah. Now, for balance, I'm going yeah. to do a female one. Yeah, nice, <laughs> nice. I like these jokes. So, number two is Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And actually, in recent times, maybe she should be number one, because she's definitely on the up, while Louis Theroux has been around for a while. So, he's experienced. You know Phoebe Waller-Bridge? No, as I say, you twist on my facial expression. I'm feeling very open and safe with you. I have never heard of Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Really? No. Oh, okay. Tell so, she is um, the writer... And star of Fleabag, the BBC mm. show. I have which seen you might that. have heard. Oh yeah, yeah you've I've seen, seen, it. seen oh, it. So that's people yeah, on the bridge. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the, the main female actress. The main female actress. Oh. And she also wrote and I think directed Killing Eve, which you might have now, also heard. Now people recommended that, but I haven't watched it yet. But it's on yeah. my it's on my notes to watch. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Um, although when she left Killing Eve, I think she left after series one to go write Star Wars or help out with Star Wars at least, then wow. you can see the decline without her. 
it is a good backstory. <laughs> yeah, it's just it lost something, and yeah. you can really see that she's no longer there behind the scenes orchestrating. Um, but I think she's an amazing messenger because, <laughs> you know, there are not enough women in comedy, and you know there are maybe many reasons for that. Um, so it's so great to be able to see a truly funny woman who you can really connect with and empathize with and hear her story and she's so good she's just so funny and able to make these like little witty quirky remarks all the time and really distinct i remember watching um fleabag mm. and thinking yeah she's really i don't know she kind of gets females of this mm. generation yeah in a way that other writers or observers haven't yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, it's funny because I feel like a lot of, um, you know, my girlfriend and yeah. her friends are kind of like that in real life. But for whatever reason, it's not being portrayed on no, the screen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really nice to see somebody embodying that on the screen and kind of being that beacon. Yeah, so is, it, is that yeah, authenticity? Kind of? She definitely is authentic. Yeah, she yeah. has that. Yeah. That allows you to kind of connect with and her. relate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's number two. Stand yeah. Messenger. Now who's, and I, who's your I told you there's three and there's a third. Yeah, and the third? third is Gary Lineker. <laughs> oh my god, that these cannot be different. <laughs> As in the football guy. The football guy. Yeah. yeah match of the match day. Match of the day. Yeah. So he yeah. was the number one um, paid person at the BBC when they controversially released their um, gender pay gap. Gender pay gap. Yeah. yeah. And. Gary Lineker, yeah, was number one. And I think there's a reason why. It's because he is so irreplaceable on that show in that everybody loves him because he was the star of the England football team. And he has this way of kind of, you know, joking around, but in a kind of I'm on your side friendly way and remains relatively impartial while commentating on uh, sports where he played for you know, Leicester and Tottenham, yeah. uh, yet he's still able to kind of talk about the other teams, even if it doesn't go his team's way. But also, he never got a yellow card. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, like, nice personality also shines through. Mm -hmm. So he's got this status. He's he's well-spoken. He's articulate and charismatic. But also, he's got this kind of nice guy soft side, too. And a bit of competence as well from the hard messenger. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think he has a number of the traits. Yeah, so maybe he's combining those superhuman traits <laughs> in some way. Yeah, although I don't think he's high on dominance. I mean, although he likes to get into a fight on Twitter. Yeah. So maybe he is. Yeah, <laughs> I just think of Gary with all the crisps. Yeah, well, that's it. And that's why he was such a good messenger for walkers and why they chose him. Yeah, that like Because it's that, yeah. Next door, exactly. But with, with something a bit more hippie and gravitas as well. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got the star quality status, but is also that guy next door. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have to send those three, I think, a copy of your, yeah, of your, your I book should. and his, yeah, and his podcast. Okay. And where, so, okay, so they're, they're, they're three of your, I guess, favourite sound messengers. Now, on the flip side, where do leaders most go wrong as messengers? Mm. Yeah, so I think we talked about the interplay and like, you know, there being a hard messenger and a soft messenger and you yeah. kind of have this dials. So I think a lot of the time it's quite intuitive to think that if you're high on one, you might be low on another. And Susan Fisk, who's a professor at Princeton, would mm. call these ambivalent stereotypes where... Ambivalent stereotypes. Stereotypes where you might be perceived as warm but low on competence. So her, yeah, she would focus mainly on those two traits. 
and ah. um, or you might be the other way around. So you might be high status. Yeah. So the kind of typical lawyer businessman. Yeah, yeah. They're seen as high status, but people don't like them or connect with them or see them as you know they they lose something in yeah. their humanity. This reminds me of the um the I don't I don't know who who conducted the studies, but is it the Heidi Rose and the case studies that given to MBA students on females and how females cannot be in the in the business mm. world, the social context cannot be likable and com- competent. Mm-hmm. So if you're seen as competent, you're seen as not likable, no one wants to work for you. But if mm. you're seen as likable, people don't rate you as competent. So it's right, kind of, right, right, right. Sounds, sounds yeah, similar. this kind of yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's exactly it. And she does a lot of work on gender stereotypes, which I've been kind of greatly influenced by. Yeah. Um, but maybe we could talk about that yeah, later. Yeah, in a bit more. <laughs> so we'll come back to that. Okay. So um, what advice would you give to leaders trying to build bridges and reduce polarisation in today's world? So that might be in politics or it could be in business. Mm. So I think the first step would be to not start with your dear. It's so obvious, but don't start with what divides you. Just start as two people mm. who are meeting and sh- kind of sharing this human moment mm. where you're sort of revealing a little something about yourself. You're kind of, you know, oh, you're a mother, you're a whatever, you're a father, you're, you went to this school you grew up here oh i know this person who yeah, grew yeah. up here yeah that kind of conversation and um just a little bit of insight into your life that makes you a human yeah. rather than an enemy on the other side yeah um so that's kind of step one and then step two is then when you do turn the discussion to this issue you disagree on yeah. start with the things that you can agree on so the kind of step back we we both agree that the overall goal should be kind of to, to both gain from this yeah. for for I, I yeah, I'm trying to think of a particular context that might be good. But um Well this is in the strategy like this is the end goal we both want to achieve and then make more money or make make more I don't mm. know, win more customers from this particular market or that this is the common problem yeah. that we both So face. actually I'm gonna steal one from Tally Sharrock, who's my PhD supervisor. Yeah. Um, and she talks about vaccines. And she says that rather than start with where you disagree, you know, we you start with the fact that we all want the best for the kids. Mm. And people actually don't disagree on the health benefits of vaccines. They mm. disagree about the negative the adverse consequences. consequences that yeah. might be there. Um, so you start with, well, this is going to do, has have this benefit for your children and we all want the best for your children. Mm-hmm. Um, so start with that and then you can start to come from the same place mm-hmm. um, so I think that's the kind of yeah my 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 number one tip or how to successfully navigate that bridge yeah. would be exactly that yeah start with the, the human connection yeah. and then find places of agreement and then where you disagree then you know try and explain why you think the way you know the the human element of what it means to you as well. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is this is really interesting. This connection point. So finding what's what's common and also I guess the common goal, that superordinate goal, which mm-hmm. is actually something that Jonathan Hyde talked about mm-hmm. in his podcast. But I'm interested in the implications for diversity and inclusion in the workplace, but I guess also in politics. So this focus on it's different aspects of our identity, whether it's ethnicity or gender. And obviously in, in this podcast context in, in politics. Um, so what 
I guess leaders are going very wrong, aren't they? Are leaders going wrong in terms of if we want if we want there to be greater equality, we should be focusing on what we have in common rather than what we what's different mm. between us. Is that fair? So are you saying that once you put a divide in and say that we have this program and that's why we have these people and these people, yeah, you're so creating a divide yeah, rather than so creating... for example, like mentoring for a specific, um, yeah, a specific ethnic group or, um, I don't know, or, yeah, or one-on-one or another specific program for XYZ group. And it mm. makes people start to think, well, hang on, I'm pretty much the average so where do I figure in mm-hmm. this and it says it starts to make us focus on what's different rather than rather than what unites us mm-hmm. and it sounds like from your advice that that's only going to lead us to an unhelpful place yeah so I'm not I'm not I'm not sure I'm not so sure about that I think that when for example I mean this is very anecdotal but yeah. I've seen I've seen positions that I've kind of considered for like a you know postdoc research money that um say women only on them yeah and they're trying to promote more women in science and I agree with the the goal and I see that and I I'm actually fine with it I just think okay there's not a men only one but there's plenty of others that do apply to me yeah and um I, I yeah I really don't have a problem and unless maybe you went around with a badge saying. I'm in a women's only scholarship, yeah. then it might be slightly divisive where yeah. people are going to push back. Yeah. Um, but the actual fact that that is the application procedure doesn't bother me in the slightest. No, and then as you said, that's a good point. It's less public, ultimately, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So maybe that's it. It's just the salience of making that divide yeah. us and them yeah. Yeah. versus having a way to promote well, yeah, diversity. Common. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what I guess thinking back, so you've got your two, so you've got your your kind of connection to humanity and common goals as advice for leaders. Are there any um are there any kind of checks that you you talk about in your book that people can almost use as like a checklist for for being an effective, the most effective messenger they can be? Mm. Well, so there's there's one thing that is commonly overlooked, and I I always do this myself, but it's um one that actually we have a very practical tip on. And it comes from a study that my co-author Steve conducted mm-hmm. um, with real estate agents, where they had a problem of trustworthiness, essentially, which may not surprise you. <laughs> um, but essentially, they were kind of saying the same thing as all the other estate agents. And they said, what can we do to you know, differentiate ourselves without actually differentiating our, proje- uh, our product or our message? And Steve had been influenced by some research by Jeff Pfeffer, actually, Uh, um, and and Robert Cialdini. And um, essentially, the research showed that people don't like self-promoters because you lose that um, humble, warm kind of characteristic. And instead, you're seen as a self-aggrandizing guy or woman who's broken the, the social norm. That is, you shouldn't openly boast and brag about your achievements yeah um so but what jeff found was that if you if somebody else does that for you and introduces your credentials it's no longer seen as self-promotion you've essentially taken the self out of the promotion (laughs) Um, and at that point you still get the upsides of having your credentials and your competence introduced before you speak and therefore 
elevating your status and the likelihood that people are going to take you seriously, but without having to have the downsides of being seen as boastful, which will kind of wipe off any upsides that may have resulted. Um, and that's a, that's a classic example of it's it's exactly the same content, it's just a different messenger and it has a totally different impact. Mm, exactly, yeah. So yeah. before you see a speaker go up and speak, they'll often be introduced. And once yes. you've heard, oh, they're CEO of this company, now I'm going to listen. You listen. <laughs> and it's really bloody awful as well when I'm presenting. I hate saying, oh, I'm this, I'm Alex Chessingham, and this is my background. It just feels, just feels like it kills the, yeah. Yeah, you need somebody to do it for you. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's, that's a really useful tip. And that's awkward too, to ask them. Yeah, can you introduce, and can you say this and not, yeah. not say this? Because, you know, if, you, if it's in an email and you can kind of get away with it, with it that way, people are almost expecting it a lot of the time and are more than happy to oblige. Yeah. Now, sh- should we, you know, one last question before I get on to the key, you know, what have you changed your mind on? How can we be open to perhaps messages that are less effective, but actually have something really useful to say, you know, that is, it is substantial? Because obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's it's really frustrating if you are a crappy messenger that you've got something really important to say. Mm. It feels like we should be listening to them. Yeah. So how is there a way we can make ourselves less susceptible to these very potent messenger effects? So it is tricky. And the work that I've seen kind of trying to de-bias and the typical route is to make people aware, make them motivated to change and then to inhibit their kind of prepotent response so their yeah. bias yeah um and if you do make people aware you can have small positive effects um but i actually was reading a paper the other day um where they had people view recruitment applicants that were either attractive or less attractive yeah, so, they had a photo on the CV. so they had a photo there and that's pretty much all they could see the photo and they also showed um their, I think it was their political affiliation as well. Ooh. So whether they were similar to the person reviewing yeah. or dissimilar. Yeah. And what they found was quite weird, which was that they could make them aware of one bias. So they could tell them, don't rely on the attractiveness of the candidate when you're judging these people. Yeah. And that's a typical bias that people fall into. Mm. And that had a small effect. It's not a huge effect, but it had a small effect. People were able to do it. But when they said, just try not to fall into biases in general, yeah. then they there was no effect on either. And when they told them, just focus on the attractiveness, they didn't make the leap and think, well, also, I might be biased about political yeah, affiliations, yeah. so I should not be supporting people who are similar to me. But they still did. That is fascinating. I mean, one, I guess one easy answer is just remove banned photos or redact them at the recruitment stage mm. but on political affiliation that is really interesting that that rings similar to research it was it was a meta-analysis by Ian Gong and colleagues at Stanford and they showed how political biases are spilling over into domains exactly what you've just said beyond politics so for example medical decisions so doctors will give different advice depending on whether they have that affiliation or not jurors make different decisions with their political affiliation and job hiring decisions mm-hmm so, yeah, and and actually, so that's something I've been looking at in my own research with um, Tally Shower, Cass Sunstein, L. Copland, and Eleanor Lowe, yeah. which essentially shows exactly that. So that we will 
rather than look just about the accuracy of what a messenger is saying, when we present information about their political views as well, then they are unable to actually learn about how accurate the person is being. And they start to then seek out their advice and utilize that advice. So they listen to them more, even though we're showing them evidence exactly how accurate the person is. And there were big differences. So, and, and I should say as well, this was not on a political topic. So they knew that the person was politically similar to them, but they were actually looking at you know, how good is this person at a completely irrelevant task? Yeah. Um, it was actually about shape categorization. So you couldn't get more abstract if you tried. And yeah. actually, we did try. Yeah. <laughs> we tried to make it abstract so that the political similarity just shouldn't matter. And yet it still carried through. And people thought that those who were politically similar were good at categorizing shapes, even when they weren't. So they take the political affiliation as a cue for competence. Exactly. Even though they've been explicitly told that the specific task they're being asked to rate the person or judge the person or do is not, they're not competent on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we asked them, how good is this person at, at categorizing blacks? How competent are they? Yeah. And they showed this illusory perception that the similar political ones yeah. were more competent at answering blacks when they weren't. And do you still see that to that effect? Is that from that's from telling people directly what political affiliation someone is? Do you still see that same effect if if it's an indirect Mm. Um, indirect cue rather than you know they're, they're a democrat or they're a conservative so we didn't tell them it in that way what we actually did was have the participant answer all these questions yeah. about for example whether they thought that in the u.s building a wall along the southern border would ah, reduce violent okay. crime yeah and then they'd see what the other person said so does do they agree or do they disagree it's already fairly indirect so it's indirect well, in a way yeah. i mean yeah, they 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 know for whatever reason they're answering these political questions, yeah. and unbeknownst to the participants, they were actually algorithms programmed to answer the same as them or differently to them eighty yeah. percent of the time. Yeah. So eighty percent of the time, one person would say, "Yes, you're right. Building a wall would not do anything," and the other person, eighty percent of the time, would say, "Actually, I think it would be a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> it will definitely reduce crime." It's fascinating. And that's published, that research. Yeah, that's published, yeah. yeah. Okay, right, everyone look at this. Go for Okay, um, I could talk about this all evening, um, but I'm aware you're here to answer our, I guess, our key question that we ask all our guests on the podcast, which is, when uh, when did you last change your mind on an issue and, and what was it? Mm. Yeah, it's a, it is a really tough question. And um, so I think the... <laughs> One issue that I have kind of gone back and forth on a lot in my mind, and I'm still not quite sure which side I land on, is this idea that we've talked about before of, is it good to have positive discrimination to allow underrepresented groups and minorities mm. into positions of top leadership where they have traditionally struggled to to kind of get in? Mm. Um, and, you know, it came, you know, my my initial view was kind of, formed by a friend's misfortune where he had applied for a job that he was very qualified for and in fact was the best candidate for mm-hmm. and he interviewed very well they loved him and they said to him we love you but we can't take you on because i think this role actually needs to be filled by a woman um yeah, and sucks, isn't it? yeah and it was really tough funny. he was unemployed at the time he was struggling to get a job this seemed like a really good one and it just seems so unfair that the right person for the job was not getting it mm. um, because of some kind of ideological 
that he has no control and he has no control of the gender. Absolutely. Yeah. He's got and no control. Gender. He's done nothing wrong. Yeah. He, he, you know, he's just worked hard his life and, and tried to get into this job um, and is now being discriminated against. So it's, you know, it seemed to me it's still discrimination. Yeah. And while I agree with the issue that, you know, we need to put, um, you know, there needs to be change. I didn't know if this was the right way to go about it. Um, but I think, um, you know, I have kind of gone back and forth a lot of times and I can go both ways <laughs> right now. But one of the things that really changed my mind was the fact that I had seen research showing that actually men and women um, are graduating at equal rates from university. And in fact, women tend to get, if anything, more degrees at both yeah. undergraduate and postgraduate level. Yeah. They are then getting jobs at the same rate when they come out of university. So there's no gender gap there. Yeah. They're um, equally capable. And if anything, you know, women are seen as more competent. Um, but yet when it gets to that top leadership role, then they're not able to make it because they're being stereotyped against because they're not seen as these hard messengers that fit the prototypical leadership bill. Mm. Um, There's that great stat on them. Um... Is it there's more men named David or something than 100 <laughs> and there are women yeah. in leadership positions? In there, yeah. It's really depressing. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's absolutely depressing. And, you know, I struggle a bit talking about this as a kind of whitish male. Mm. Um, it's I'm the wrong messenger to be talking <laughs> about it, ironically. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that from doing the research for the book, and we do touch on gender and it's sort of kind of the hot topic of the day, yeah. but I think we do kind of have something to say about it. Um, and that is that, you know, these stereotypes are now entrenched um, for various reasons, you know, social and evolutionary reasons that yeah. men are seen as the harder messengers mm -hmm. and women the softer messengers. Mm -hmm. So men more dominant and confident and women more um, emotionally sensitive, caring, warm. warm. Exactly. And when women try to adopt those hard messenger traits, yeah. they are punished for it. Yeah, and this is the one my aunt always tells me, is that she'll get accused of being bossy if she shouts, yes. whereas a man would be respected. Yes, I'm really aware of my daughter who displays those kind of characteristics. Like she has leadership qualities. She's not bossy, she has leadership qualities. Mm -hmm. Was there anyone previously that tried to change your mind on that on positive discrimination but had had what had failed hmm. Do you know i think i always thought that i was sort of ideologically aligned to that way of thinking so i should yeah. support it yeah. and yet it just seems so unfair yeah so in a way i was kind of trying to persuade myself i thought i know that i should believe in this but yeah. i just don't yeah. <laughs> um based on you know what what i could see happening to my friend and, and other examples yeah um i just thought that there may be a better way to go about it I guess what what did you learn from that about how how that experience or those people who aren't entirely had changed your mind? Mm. What, what did you learn from it? Yeah, I think um, I think part of it was how easy it is to forget what you previously thought. Once yeah. you change your mind, there's this. They talk about a curse of knowledge in psychology, which yeah. is once you know something, you forget what other people know, and actually you you can't put you know. Put yourself outside of your own shoes enough to yeah. really take their perspective and remember where you came from. You almost like unlearn what you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And so that is, yeah, I think one thing that I, I kind of learned about myself, which yeah. was that it's hard for me to now <laughs> remember why I thought that in the first place or to argue yeah. what I used to think. Or, yeah. um, and, and in fact, just trying to come up with something you've changed your mind of shows this. It's like yes. people struggle. I've heard the show before. Yeah. And it's one of those questions that people really don't like because you you have your position now. You think, I must have always had that position. Yeah. That's the thing that struck us the most is the, I think 90% of guests have really struggled to come up with something that they feel is substantial enough that they've changed their mind on. Mm. I remember asking Tally, in uh, it was our third or fourth guest, but you know, why is this? Like, what does the research say? Is it because people like to be consistent and, and they, they they just don't they just don't like to admit that they have changed their mind, or is it that they genuinely forget and the memory almost erases what you have previously believed? You know, it's from an efficiency, it's, it's more efficient, I guess, mm. isn't it? Like, it's really that's the that's, that's one of the things that struck us the most. And what does she say? She didn't know. She said it was a good question, but she she, she, wasn't, she wasn't sure whether there's been research done on it or if there yeah. was what the research said. And we, we haven't come across. Yeah. So the only thing I, I've seen that's similar is retrospective inference, it's called. Yeah. And that's where you inference. retrospective inference. You infer your previous belief from yeah. what you know now. Ah, OK. That could that could explain that. So, yeah, you, you, you think back to previous times knowing what you know now yeah. um, and assume that you kind of always knew that yeah yeah that does make sense okay that's brilliant that's given us some kind of <laughs> some kind of more concrete explanation okay one last question actually I've got two last questions that's all right so first of all is there a time when a messenger gave you a message which you didn't change your mind on but a different messenger might have been successful oh. <laughs> um I'm trying to think, yeah, who can I not, can I say that's not going to be offended? <laughs> um, do you know, I used to really react against my older brother. Mm. So as a kid growing up, you know, he was quite, you know, as most older brothers are, like a dominant type. Mm -hmm. um, and I tried to react against that. So anything he said, I'd push back. And then occasionally I can't, now think of a specific example but then he would say something i would argue back instinctively and then my parents would say actually he's right and it's like this and all of a sudden i'd be like huh maybe he is right all along yeah. <laughs> and now uh, coming from them it just seems so much more credible and actually eminently sensible yeah i was gonna say exactly the same if someone asked me this question i'd be like my mum now I look back and I think I'm turning into my mum. <laughs> I can hear myself giving the same advice my mum gave me to my own kids, which they ignore. Um, so yeah, I, I get that. It's not like family members, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, last question, I promise. Um, who would you like to hear about uh, from on this podcast, given by anyone, about a time when they've changed their mind? Who would be your number one guest for this? Do you know what I really want to know is why Boris Johnson backed out of the 2016 Conservative Party leadership bid? Because at the time, he was the front runner after the referendum and after David Cameron resigned. Yeah. He had just spearheaded the Leave campaign. Yeah. And it was assumed that he was going to go for it and Michael Gove was going to back him. And the yeah. story is that Michael Gove withdrew his support and ran against Boris. And knifed him, yeah. And knifed him. Yeah. And it was called like the political assassination of the decade yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, but 
it doesn't quite add up to me because surely Boris still could have run against Gove mm. and actually probably would have beaten Gove. Um, yes, what the hell's going on? So I really didn't understand what was going on. And, you know, maybe it's because Gove took supporters with him, but you can't know that unless you go for it, right? So I really feel like there was something else going yeah. on there. And I want to know why. <laughs> Boris, if you were listening, or if any, uh, any contacts with Boris, if you listening, please get in touch. We'd love to have you on. Joe, thank you. This has been incredible. Do you know how long we've been going for an hour now? Really? Yeah, this has been fascinating. I've been going for another hour. Thank you I very much. I hope you have plenty of good stuff. Thank you good. so much. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Alex, thank you for doing that super fascinating, wide-ranging interview with Joe for us. I was not expecting Louis Theroux to come up, um, but as a big fan, greatly delighted that he did. How much do you feel like you've learnt in the last hour, or nearly hour? Uh, I feel like I've learned a huge amount from someone who's really thought carefully and reflected on what they're going to say mm. and actually helps to make sense of what at times can be quite a confusing world. You know, why do people still trust leaders who may have told untruths, for example? Why are they Why are they still with them and why does that not matter? I thought that was fascinating. That really Joe explained that really well, that you can change your mind as long as your supporters still see you as essentially being on side. So the overall story stays strong. Mm. I think that really resonated listening to it because actually it sort of explains how some of those particular styles of leaders manage to keep up this sort of overarching narrative when actually bit wobble off here and there because you you still want to believe the whole yeah and I think also it's natural for some bits to wobble on and off in a very changing and dynamic world I mean it's particularly (laughs) the case at the minute well I think I think we could sometimes do with a few less technical (laughs) terms uh, in our politics at the minute um and a few more plain speaking ones so wobbled (laughs) off let's roll with it I know what you mean well was there anything that you really wanted to know you were left hanging I mean I think it would be remiss, Alex, not to say that I really wanted to know how you'd managed to survive the last year of being alive without knowing who Phoebe Waller-Bridge was. Uh, But apart from that, from from Joe himself, um, I thought it was really interesting when you talked about how vulnerability sits with leadership. And I know that's Mm. come up with other interviewees as well, you know, how you... Uh, you know whether it really serves you to be a whole self at work or not I think that's fascinating I think mm. we picked that up with Jeff Pfeffer before as well don't we it's not always on authenticity a great idea um, mm. but intuitively something you know you might want to strive for mm. yeah and and I think if you're it's different sometimes between internal and external in a political context you much more obviously have opponents who are looking for vulnerabilities to exploit so maybe you do need to be more careful about putting them out there um, um, and what you'll do. And I, I, I was sort of struck struck by that and also intrigued how Alex has got through the last year without knowing who Phoebe Waller-Bridge is. I know, is. so guys, I need, this is why I needed you. You know I'm out of the culture. culture. <laughs> it was also that. really, it was really nice to hear about Gary Lineker though. <laughs> Again, someone that I do, do recognise the name of. Um, but that did make me smile as well. You know, that sort of flitting between uh, Walker's crisps of the, you know. And serious side. And the serious side as well. Yeah, although, I mean, I was, as Joe was listing those people who were good messengers, there were some slightly unexpected names to me, but they weren't unexpected 
in the sense that they came from backgrounds that seemed to be very different to his own. So they were all people who maybe read some of the newspapers or appeared on shows that he looked at. There was nobody who seemed to have really challenged his viewpoint. And he said they were a great messenger because they made me think about something that was really difficult in a way that I hadn't thought about previously. And I guess if I was really going to push him, that's where I'd have loved for for Joe to go and to explore. Mm. You know, but in otherwise, it was extremely, I thought, incredibly thoughtful. The other thing that struck me, and, I, and I'll say this being on the other side of the Atlantic, is where he was talking about changing his own mind. It, it reminded me of, of Jo Swinson when she came along and said she became in favour of affirmative action, that there are quite different circumstances between the UK and the US on that. And I think for our US listeners, it's probably worth placing that in a bit of context. And it becomes even more pronounced, those differences when they're applied to race um, and the amount of systemic and institutional discrimination that exists in, in America towards people from certain racial backgrounds. You know, slavery is a much more recent memory here. Mm. That's not to pretend it doesn't exist in the UK or, or elsewhere. But I do think that there's context that's different, different that came out yeah. Yeah, it came out a little bit in our interview with Marsha Chatlain, why three white British people, we were all incredibly thoughtful yeah. and, and listening. But for some of us, it was it was quite new and different. And I think we should go and find somebody to come on the podcast who has changed their mind about affirmative action in one way or another in, in the States, because it is different how it, it operates here. Some bits are the same, but some parts are quite pronounced um, in in how they operate differently mm. and the challenges that people face can be can be very significant. I think that's a good idea. I think it'd be really interesting to hear how that varies both on the sort of lived experience, I suppose, of the place, but also the cultural differences and how that shapes the type of affirmative action you, you may or may not believe is necessary. Yes, absolutely. Alex, what were you what did you, what was your take on what Joe was saying? Was there anything that you got to the end and you thought, gosh, I wish I had more time to dig into this? No, my most I guess light bulb moment or you know, the solving the jigsaw puzzle was the the point which you two have already picked up on how leaders can be perceived as both trust sorry, as both uh trustworthy but not truthful. Mm. Uh so solving that puzzle was was a was a real winner for me, but you guys have already picked up on it. But it's sort of fascinating when you unpick it, though, isn't it? Because you do, when when you don't think about it carefully, you assume they're the same. Um, mm. And I think it's really interesting, like, over the last, I don't know, however long, few years where truth seems to have become somewhat less heralded all of the time, the, the most important thing, um, that that doesn't necessarily affect people's trustworthiness. It's a, it's a really interesting psychological phenomenon. Very, very nuanced, yeah, but explained very well. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll put some notes up online for people to be able to find out more about that. And it does trigger me into just thinking about Malcolm Gladwell's latest book about how we default truth, mm. and particularly from authority figures. Mm. We tend to want to believe them. And even if they get something wrong, we want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm. And what does that do when that happens over a prolonged period of time to the establishment and to that authority? You know, how does that end up people feeling? I think that's something to dig into into a future podcast. Mm, Malcolm Gladwell, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay, actually, sometimes that, I know people do, actually. Um, <laughs> because but, they email me and tell me corrections. I was just going to say, for Joe as well, you know, last but not least, I really enjoyed hearing his explanation of the different traits of messengers. And, you know, the idea that there is somebody somewhere who has all eight of them <laughs> flourishing. Yeah, so super maybe messenger. If any, maybe if anyone knows that person, we can have them on yeah. as well. Last question to you two. Yeah. What What are your messengers? Are you hard or soft messengers? 
Are you going to go first, Ali, or am I? No, I was leaving a pause there, hoping that you jump in because it's a hard question. <laughs> um, I think I'm a bit of a mix of the two, uh, but more comfortable where it's more about building a connection with people. So it's more yeah. about warmth and shared experience and um, the sort of emotional side of things. Um, but I also know that although I, I don't acknowledge it very often, I can be quite forceful. Um, so I have to think, think there's a little Maybe bit you are the super to. eight. Maybe you're one of the super eights, the super women with the super eight. <laughs> well, nice, yeah, I think but... I'm... Uh, 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 yeah, Laura, you come pretty close. I think I'm definitely not. I think I'd love to think that I was empathetic all the time. Um, and I'm not, I can just be a bit of a badass and to myself um, as well. And that's that's kind of how I'm made. I have to be careful uh, sometimes. And it's something I've become much more aware of outside the UK that people will describe me as intimidating and particularly the British accent. Oh, interesting. Carrying. Yeah. Like, cause I don't think I sound, I don't think I sound different in any way at all, but that it, it carries with it. But does that lend uh, you status? Privilege. Yeah, it does link to status. Mm. And people think that because you've got a British accent Competence? that you're what automatically competent? clever. Yeah, um, just and obviously I am. Obviously thing. I am, right? But, but, but also sometimes I do say stupid things and I totally get away with it um, <laughs> out here. So British people, I can advise you to travel. Non-British people don't just think that because they've got the accent, they're smart. They can say really stupid stuff. Um, but yeah, on that note, I guess I should draw things um, to a close. Messengers, um, Joe's book that he's written with Steve Martin is now out in all good bookstores on both sides of the Atlantic with rave reviews. Um, so pick it up wherever you want or on Amazon. Uh, we'd like to say a huge thank you to Open Democracy to for sharing this with their many, many readers. To Caroline Crampton, our producer, who has strung this together in a way that makes sense and that you enjoy it. Um, and to Kevin McLeod, whose Dreams Become Real is our intro and outro music licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>